You can turn over to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. We're looking at a very difficult portion of Scripture in Romans chapter 5. Uh, yet it's very, uh, it's difficult to understand, and yet it's also simple. <laughs> and uh, by that I mean you can read this over and over and over again and get lost in the menagerie of Paul's words. And, uh, but once you uh, step back from his big picture, uh, it, it makes perfect sense. And so we're going to take a couple weeks to work through verses 12 to 19, but you have an outline there, and uh, today we will be following the first page of the outline. Two weeks ago, uh, you recall, uh, you had the same outline, but I decided to kind of lay a foundation for this study, and we talked about the union, the mystical union that we have with Christ. And um, it's called the mystical union because it is just that. It's kind of hard to understand. It's kind of mystical. It's divine. And uh, we discovered, uh, just way of review, uh, two weeks ago, that um, there are three of these unions recorded in Scripture that are spoken of. And the first one was the union of the persons of the Godhead in the Trinity. All right? Um, We don't believe in three gods. Um, We are monotheistic. And so we believe that there is one God. And yet, um, as, as Christians, as Jews, we speak of only one God, and yet that God has a Godhead made up of three distinct persons. We're not going to give you a theological lesson on the Trinity. That would be many messages, obviously, and we probably still wouldn't understand it. I know we still wouldn't understand it, and it because it's not logical. But it is divine. And so that was the first union, um, that we, we looked at a couple weeks ago, the Godhead, and uh, how those three are just one, that's, that's kind of a, a mystical thing. Secondly, we looked at the similar case of the union uh, between the two natures of Christ. Jesus Christ was a man, 100% human, and yet he was still 100% God. Now, a mathematician, my brother used to be a mathematician. He had a master's degree in mathematics, And uh, I'd always say, man, I'm going to give it 110%. He goes, it's impossible. I said, what do you mean? You can't give it anything 110%. (laughs) That's ridiculous. Think about what you're saying. And, you know, he was just very literal in his approach to mathematics. So when we say God was, Christ was 100% man and 100% human, I know that that in our logic adds up to 200% and that's not possible. But that's exactly what the case is, the Lord Jesus Christ is one person, and yet he has two distinct natures. When he was here on earth, he sweat, okay, he felt agony, he felt hunger, he felt temptation. The Bible says that he was tempted in every way, even as we are. And so there's not a temptation that you're going to face that Christ didn't already face. That's good news, that he walked in our shoes, that he knows what it's like. I mean, he would know anyway because he's God and he created us. But there's something about, you know, if you've ever been in a class and uh, um, the professor stands up there and talks and talks and talks and, 
And then maybe after class you go up and you ask him a practical application of what he just talked about. And he has no clue what you're trying to get at. He knows all the stuff in the, in the book and he knows it here. But when you say, well, how does this relate to my life? They, some, some professors just, just can't do it. You know, and uh, they give you an answer like, well, that's not going to be on the test. I said, well, I know that, but, you know, it's irrelevant. You know, that's why when I was in high school, I enjoyed classes like uh, metal shop and wood shop. Those were my favorite classes. Why? Because you could actually go in there and put into practice the things that you were learning. You know, and, and I'm still that way. I, I, I like to apply things. I don't just, I'm not a, a knowledge um, uh, you know, someone who chases just after knowledge for knowledge's sake. That's vain in my mind. You know, there's a lot of smart people in the world, but there's definitely not a lot of practical people. And so when we stop and we think about that, that union between Christ, the two natures that he had, all right? I mean, he was one person, yet he had two natures. And then the third thing we looked at was simply the case between the union of believers with Christ. That when we become a Christian, when we put our faith, when we repent and we turn from our sins to Christ, that, and we trust in the, 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 work of, of the work of Christ on Calvary, that he paid for our sins. We're not trying to earn our way. We're, we're trusting in the sacrifice that he provided for us. At that point... When we are saved, God says that he places us in Christ. That we become, that's our, that's our state. We're in Christ. And we looked at several examples of that teaching. And um, the vine and the branches being one of them and marriage and different ones. And you can get the message if you're interested in that. But that was a couple weeks ago. And I thought it was important to lay that foundation. Because if you don't have that foundation, if you don't understand who you are in Christ, that you are in Christ. The Bible says that we're no longer enemies. Um, that he considers us friends. He considers us brothers. Um, and it's hard to understand how is that possible. But that's what the Bible says. And so without that doctrine, I think it's hard to understand what we're about to get into here in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. And uh, it's, it really... Uh, goes beyond that. But it works the other way, I think, too, because we have to understand the believer's union with Christ to understand these verses, all right, but almost in a parallel way, you might say, uh, in order to understand how we are in Christ and what that means, we first have to understand that we were in Adam before we were in Christ. And that's really where this passage starts. If you look at verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man. Well, who was that one man? That one man was Adam. The passage starts with Adam, and it builds from him. Showing on the one hand how the union of the race in Adam and the union of believers in Christ. Uh, Even though they're, 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 they're different, the results are different. The reunion from Adam brings us what? brings us death, brings us sin. And the reunion with Christ brings us life, brings us forgiveness. And so they all deal with this aspect of us being justified, that we are standing before God, a holy people, not because of something we've done, but because God has justified us. He's made us right with himself. And that should be a blessing. 
that we don't have to try to work at that. That we're not working to gain God's acceptance day after day by coming to church, by reading your Bible, by praying, by giving to the poor, by doing different deeds of kindness. Now those things are important, and I'm not saying you don't do those things. But you definitely shouldn't be looking at those things as a means to earn earn God's grace. And so to help here us understand more clearly and to really believe in the principle of imputed righteousness, in other words, we don't have no righteousness of our own. That's what Paul has covered up to this point. He, you're, you're sinners, you're sinners, you're sinners. That's what we've heard. And then all of a sudden he stops and he says, but you know what? There's still hope because Christ can give you his righteousness. The righteousness of one man can become yours. And so to kind of illustrate that, he says, it's important to understand that not only can, is it possible for you to receive Christ's righteousness, because at that time probably the Jews are asking, wait a minute, just because of one man this is going to happen? And so what Paul does is he uses the illustration of Adam, and he goes back and he says, yeah, just like it was with Adam, because of one man. Look at, look at the situation we're in. And so before I read the passage... I want to just give you a little kind of a a parenthesis around this to kind of show you where it goes. Because once we read it, you'll see, oh, this is kind of, you know, tricky to understand. But but basically, the flow of the passage, it it teaches, starting in verse 12, it teaches that sin followed by death came into the world by Adam. But you'll notice that at the end of verse 12 in your Bible... There's probably a dash, or there's probably some kind of a little thing. Well, what's that mean? That's kind of like a parenthesis. So Paul starts down this road in verse 12, and at the end of verse 12, he said, this death spread to all men because all sinned. And then he says, you know what? I better explain this. (laughs) So he's putting a a parenthesis here. And uh, he he wants to explain in verses 13 and 14, just kind of, you can think of those as, as a little a parenthetical thought there. They explain what Paul meant when he said, because all sinned. But then at the end of verse 14, <laughs> the apostle throws in another parenthesis, within a parenthesis. You can see how this kind of gets complicated. Because he wants us to understand the parallel between Adam and Christ, which he suggested in verse 14. And so that parenthesis is actually a parenthesis within a parenthesis, and that fills out verses 15 to 17. So it's really not until verse 18. So you could actually read the text this way. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. And then go all the way down to verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led one condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. That's the sentence. And everything in between it is all parenthetical thought. He's explaining as he goes. You've all done that, right? I mean, we all do that. Um, Women are are really good at that. You know, they start a sentence and, you know, yeah, yeah, I I went to the mall today and I saw saw Sally Jane and she had her child there. Oh, her child was wearing these great little shoes and, and, you know, she she bought them at this store and maybe we could get the grandkids, you know, uh, a pair of shoes there, you know. Oh, did did I tell you that Sophia, uh, you know, won her Awana thing the other? And and you're like, whoa, wait a minute, where where did this sentence start and where is it going? Okay, and we all do that to a certain, that's what Paul's doing here. 
That's really what he's doing. He's just kind of unraveling this before our eyes. And unless you know that, when you read it, you're kind of going, man, he's all over the place. So I want to point out what is we're about to read and the kind of the parallelism between Christ and Adam. And you're going to notice a couple words here. You're going to notice one, the word one, a lot. Um, you're going to notice maybe the word just as or more than those words a couple times. And there's, there's a real parallelism here that Paul is trying to get across because Adam, through Adam, the race experienced sin. The human race experienced sin. And that sin led to condemnation. That led to judgment. That led to what? Death. But on the other hand, what Paul wants us to understand, through Christ, believers have experienced forgiveness. They've experienced righteousness, not their own, but that which is given to them by Christ. And they, that leads to life. That leads to justification and eternal life. And so Paul is really going down this road of comparing Adam and Christ and the effects. And the point is simply this, that one man can make a difference, a big difference. <laughs> one individual can really change a lot. Um, so let's read that with that kind of the backdrop. We'll read the text, verses 12 to 19. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Here comes the parenthetical thought. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. Even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. This other parenthetical thought here. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have, have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abound for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass, he closes the parentheses and he finishes his sentence finally, therefore, as one trespass led to to condemnation for all men, So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And so basically you get that that, that whole gist of where Paul is going. And he's basically teaching us two basic facts in history. He's teaching us the act of Adam, which brought condemnation and death, and the act of Christ, the act of Jesus, which brought justification and life. The results are brought to us by, once again, our union with Adam. On the one hand, and then on the other hand, our union with Christ. 
you know, as a chaplain, you deal, I mean, when the phone rings, usually it's because somebody died. You know, when the PD calls and says, we need a chaplain, it's usually something bad has happened. I've never had a call from the PD, and they said, hey, um, chaplain, could you come by and, you know, help us out with this dessert? We got some dessert left over. I thought maybe we'd just be invited to invite you over to lunch or whatever. It never happens, okay? Um, why? Because it's a crisis, kind of a ministry. So when something goes wrong, when someone dies, when someone's sick, and they feel that crime was done and people are traumatized, whatever, they call out a, a chaplain. And, you know, you face death. That's basically what you do. Okay? And, and over and over and over again, you're, you're staring death in the face. And I'm reminded of this. that It says death spread to all men. That's what it says. Just as sin entered into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sin. Now, you might ask the question, why? Why is there death? I mean, how is it that death is something that touches everyone in the world? Why is it that everyone must die? (laughs) Whether at the end of a long life or at the beginning of a very, very, very young life. Some of the the hardest things to deal with are Sid's death or infant, infant deaths. Because you think, boy, this child was innocent. This child didn't do anything to anybody. And yet they still died. Why is that? How did death come to be this reigning power in the world that touches every life? And we're going to see that in verses 12 to 14 today. And it's a, it's a difficult couple of verses we're going to look at, but I think that we'll, we'll work our way through them. Um, now, the reason Paul is writing this is not because somebody said, hey, Paul, why do we die? <laughs> okay, let me give you the answer. No. But we're going, to, we're going to get the answer to that question, but that's not the purpose of this text. He wants to teach that one man's deed can affect many. That's what he wants to teach us. That's the primary principle he's trying to get across. That on the one hand, the one deed, the one work of Christ can affect many people. And yet on the other hand, the one work of Adam affected many people. Because that's really where he's he's going in this book. In chapters 1, 2, the, the first half of chapter 3, what, he, what did we talk about for, for months? We talked about the lostness of man. We talked about the sin of man over and over and over again. And then at the beginning, uh, in the second half of chapter 3, in chapter 4, the first half of here, chapter 5, he told us how Christ can reverse this. That Christ has allowed an opportunity for man's lostness to be reversed. That it can be redeemed. That we can be saved through the work of Christ. That Christ is justified by his death on the cross all who come to him in faith. That's what Paul's message has been. And so the Jews who are listening to Paul teach this and, 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 and write this, okay, are going to ask Paul, okay, Paul, you say that every man is sinful, that every man is lost, that every man is doomed, every man is damned to hell, every man is condemned, condemned to judgment. And then all of a sudden, this one man pops on the scene, Jesus Christ, and everything goes away. 
You really expect us to believe that, Paul? That this guy goes to a cross and he dies and then he, he rises from the, the dead. And this, this, by this one act, that, that all these people can be justified. And the question is simply, how can one man and what he did affect so many? And in order to show that, he shows us in verses 12, basically through 21. Because the one man, Adam, in one act of sin affected the whole human race. Through Jesus Christ, all men can be reconciled to God, just as through Adam, all were alienated from God. That's his whole point. Now, there's a couple things that we have to assume in verse 12. Okay, very important truths that are there. First of all is the universality of sin. That's what he says. Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, what? Because all sinned. Sin is something that's universal. Sin is something that has touched every soul on the planet except one, and that was Christ. Every, every one of us has sin. You can hear it even from, from those who are not Christians when you call into question their behavior. Have you ever heard this? Well, after all, I'm no saint. (laughs) People say that. I'm no saint. What are they doing? They're admitting that they have sin in their life. That's what Paul says here. So the universality of sin, universality of sin is, is something that's a given. Well, the same thing with death. It's universal. You know, you've heard the the quote, there's nothing certain in life, but what? Death and taxes, okay? Um, But that raises a couple big questions. How can you explain that? Why is sin universal? Why is death a universal experience for all of us? I mean, just on the basis of averages, on the law of averages, shouldn't we expect that somewhere at some time there would or or will have been a sinless person? Shouldn't we somehow find at some time a person that will not die? And the secular people, they answer those questions in two ways. First of all, they say there's no connection between sin and death at all. They're two utterly different, unrelated issues. And they try to explain them naturally. As far as sin is concerned, the secular viewpoint says, well, sin is only an imperfection. (laughs) And sooner or later, the human race will overcome those imperfections. And it fits perfectly into their little evolutionary model, right? Everybody's getting better. Everybody's getting better. Things are getting more refined. We're gradually evolving into a more complex and and more perfect individual. And so sin, a secular person would argue that sin means only that we are not yet where we hope to be. (laughs) Eventually, we'll be sinless. There's two things wrong with that. First, if, if sin is only an imperfection then it's not really correct to call it sin. 
or even to look down on it as something that's less desirable. If it's just a step in the evolutionary process, well, we're just not done yet. You know, when we do bad things, that's not bad. Sin is not bad at all. That's their thinking. That's, you know, what would be the answer to that. The second problem is simply this. If sin is only an imperfection and it's to be eliminated in time as a result of inevitable upward movement of our evolutionary process, then why has so much evil been around so, so long, for so long? Stop and think about that. And it doesn't look like it's getting any better. It looks like it's getting worse. It looks like the world is becoming more and more unraveled. That sin is becoming more prevalent, just like the scriptures say it will. So if sin is only a minor imperfection, why hasn't that imperfection been eliminated up to this point? I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to look around at our society today and realize that it's a sinful society. And so, you know, the the, the problem and the answer to this, the Christian answer to the universality of sin and the death, the universality of, of death, is simply that, first of all, Death is not natural. See, we believe that death is natural. It's just a natural process. Well, no, it's not. It wasn't from the beginning. God didn't create us in the garden and say, okay, boy, you know, you're going to die. No. It's not a natural thing. What is it? What is death? Death is a result. It's a result of the punishment of God for sin. That's why there's death. The scripture says that that sin entered the world through the one act of Adam, who was the first man. And from from that one act, from Adam, sin and consequences, death, passed on to his descendants. Now when you look at the text here in verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world. That, That word therefore is basically there for a reason. It's saying everything I just said to you is important. Paul's looking back at verses 1 through 11. He's looking back even previously in his letter where he pointed out certain things. That man is sinful. That man needs to be righteous and perfect to stand before God. The only way that's going to happen is if God gives him some form of perfection, some form of righteousness. And that righteousness comes through Christ. But it also looks forward. It looks forward to our one day being sanctified completely, totally like Christ. When we get out of chapter 5 and into chapter 6, Paul begins to talk about not so much salvation, but more sanctification. The process of becoming holier and holier in our Christian walk. What that means. You become more like Christ each day. I mean, I wish it were, you know, you pray a little prayer and you come to Christ and you repent of your sins and Jesus gloriously saves you and says, boom, now you're perfect. (laughs) That'd be great, wouldn't it? You don't have to deal with sin anymore. You just walk around and, you know, whatever. I mean, that would be wonderful, but it doesn't happen that way. He leaves us here on this earth filled with sin. He leaves us in a sinful body. And we got to grapple day in and day out. All of a sudden there's a war going on. 
between our spirit and the spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit. And so crucial to living a life of holiness and freedom from sin is understanding our new identity in Christ, who we are in Christ. I really believe that there's a lot of Christians that struggle in their Christian walk, not because they don't read their Bible, not because they don't pray or come to church or whatever. They, they, they struggle in their Christian walk is because they don't know who they are in Christ. They don't know their identity in Christ. Because wrapped up in that is everything about the Christian life. So when Paul contrasts here our old identity in Adam prior to our salvation with our new identity in Christ, he looks ahead at laying a foundation for our sanctification. Why should you be becoming more holy? Because you're a new creature in Christ. And so the themes of grace and sin and death as reigning powers, you're going to see these a lot in the coming chapters. And so when you identify yourself, either with Adam or in Christ, that's key to understanding these these verses. Paul is saying that you're either under condemnation because you're still in Adam, or you've been justified and you're righteous because now you are in Christ. In verses 15 and 17 of our text, you see the little words there, much more. He wants to encourage his believers the believers in Christ, with the certainty of their glorious future. He's basically telling them, you know what? God's not done with you yet. I mean, isn't it a glorious thing that God saves you and we can tell by His Word and by the affirmations of Scripture that He will completely save us one day? There's no question about that. We don't have to go to bed at night wondering, oh, man, I hope I'm going to make it to heaven. We don't have to walk around as insecure Christians wondering whether or not we are secure in Christ. Because that's a paralyzing thought. I mean, think about it this way. If you had your job and any day you had a feeling, every day you went to work, you had a feeling that was the day you were going to get fired. You don't think that would paralyze your work? You don't think that you... I mean, every time you went to do something, you'd say, well... You know, if I'm going to get fired, why, you know, why plan for next week? Why? It would paralyze you if you had that thought running through your head every day. And that's what it does for believers who are do, do not believe in the perseverance of the saints. They don't believe in the security of the believer. They walk around and they're just paralyzed each and every day because they don't have the security of their salvation. I put a little... Summation there, if you are in Adam, you are under the reign of death. But if you are in Christ, you will reign in life because Christ's life is greater than Adam's sin. See, that's why it's important for us to understand that we are in Christ. That we are one with Him. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, The whole story of the human race can be summed up in terms of what has happened because of Adam and what has happened and will happen. Because of Jesus Christ. Those two individuals radically changed the outcome for everybody. And so the first point there, if you are in Adam, you are under the reign of death. That's what he says in verses 12 to 14. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Well, look at verse 12. It basically tells us that sin and death entered the world through Adam. 
And in Adam, we have all sinned. That's what he says in verse, verse 12. By one man, sin entered, look at, entered the world, entered the cosmos. Who do you think that one man is? All you have to do is go down to verse 14, right? And he tells us. Tells us that one man is Adam. Have you ever done a character study on Adam? (laughs) Not much there. We don't know a lot about Adam. The Bible doesn't say a lot about Adam. Here's what Dr. Barnhouse says about Adam. Apart from the story of his fall, Adam's fall, it is remarkable how little is written in the Bible concerning Adam. He was created by God. He was commanded to take dominion over creation. He fell. For, the first, for, for him, the first blood sacrifice was made. He had several children, the first of whom was a murderer, the second a type of those who believe and follow Christ, and the third a progenitor of the race and fulfillment of the promises of God. There is also recorded Adam's age at death, an extremely meager biography. But two stupendous facts make Adam one of the most famous names in history. Here's what he says. He was the first man, and he was the first sinner. He dissipated his children's heritage And we have all been in spiritual poverty ever since. But as we peer at him through the shadows of time, we do not judge him too harshly. For we know that he did exactly what we would have done if we would have been in his place. And indeed, he goes on, we can look rather kindly upon Adam. Because through him we learn the principle of the one standing for the many. At the cross, Jesus Christ at the cross of Jesus Christ, we see that other one, that we see that other one also standing for the many. As Adam stood for many and brought death upon all, so also our Lord Jesus Christ stood for many and brings life to all who believe. Without question, every one of us is in Adam. Can you look away to Calvary and know that you were in Christ? Have you been defiled by the stream that flows from Adam? You can find cleansing only by plunging into the stream that flows from the Lord Jesus Christ dying for us as the head of the new race. Through one man, sin came into the world. Now listen, this is important. Sin entered the world through one man. That doesn't mean Adam invented sin. It wasn't invented by Adam. It wasn't invented by one man. It wasn't originated by that one man. In John chapter, uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, Jesus says that the devil has sinned what? Since the beginning. See, a lot of people think that sin had its origin in the Garden of Eden. And that's not true. Sin was around a long time before the Garden of Eden. How long? We don't know. But sin entered this world, this cosmos, our existence, the system of creation, through one man, and that one man was Adam. He introduced us, as mankind, to sin. He became the agent of the devil. 
The wicked, vile, sinful devil tempted Adam, who became a vehicle to pass sin out of the angelic realm, where it was before, into the human realm. Go back to Genesis 2. Genesis 2, all the way to the beginning of your Bible. Because I think this is important that we continue to understand the foundation from which Paul is teaching. And in Genesis 2, look at verse 15. It says, The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden uh, of Eden to till it and to keep it. It's the garden of paradise, a perfect environment. Um, there's no flaw, there's no sin here. Verse 16, And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden. Whatever you want, go for it. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day in which you eat of it, you shall surely die. No trickery. There's no, you know, gray area here. God is very direct. He says, Adam, you can do whatever you want. You can have anything you want. Just don't have this one thing. If you eat this one thing, you will surely die. You wonder if Adam even knew what death was. <laughs> Look down at chapter 3. Verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord, the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Very simple tactic. Questioning the veracity, questioning the authority, the true intention of God's word. Heresy is born out of this. Does the Bible really say this? When we question the authority of the word of God, we go down the wrong path. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the tree, any, any of the trees in the garden, verse 3, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, and we're not allowed to touch it, lest we die. <laughs> hmm, a little different than what God said. Isn't it funny how we do that? We take the Bible and, you know, it's funny sometimes you hear politicians you know, maybe they're at a prayer breakfast or maybe they're, you know, whatever. And they're trying to be spiritual. And they'll say, well, after all, the Bible says, you know. And they'll say something that's clearly not in the Bible. And you wonder who's writing these speeches for these individuals. Um, but it happens all the time, both, on both sides of the, the thing. And it, it's just important for us to know what the Word of God says. Now, we don't know whether she added this to be honest, or whether Adam added this when he told her. You know, it, it's, it's a time of confession here. I think all guys have done this at one point or another. You know, you got an appointment, you got to go out to eat, you got to be somewhere sometime, and the wife says, oh, what time you got to be there? And you say, oh, we got to be there at uh, 7.30. 
knowing that that gives you about a 30-minute window, <laughs> a buffer. You know, you don't have to be there at 8, but, you know, we've got to be there at 7.30. So that kind of pads it, you know, so you, you don't end up getting frustrated or whatever. You're changing the facts. You're hedging on it. And that's what, we don't know whether Adam did this. Like, okay, he said don't, don't eat it lest we die. But you know what, uh, Eve, uh, God said, um, don't even go near it. <laughs> don't even touch it. Just stay away from it. But she knows that she's not supposed to eat it. Maybe even... Adam told her not to touch it. We don't know where that came from, Adam or Eve, but irregardless, that's not what God said, but that's what they said. Maybe he was just kind of padding the situation. Verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, it all starts there, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, What did she do? Took of its fruit and ate it. Then she gave it to her husband. He said, okay. (laughs) What do we call that? Call that sin. Call that disobedience. I mean, God didn't, it wasn't a gray area. You know, I guarantee you take your kids home, you lock them in their bedroom, you put a nice big, uh, you know, plate of cookies you say don't you touch one of those i'll be back in five minutes you know you've seen this on on the the hidden camera shows or whatever and the parent leaves and the kid's like oh <laughs> you know sooner or later man they're just shoving them down the throat right i mean that's that's the way sin is they understood when they said don't touch the cookies they got their cookies, their hands caught in the cookie jar. That's exactly what happened here. That's disobedience, the fall of man. And it says, it goes on in the text there in Genesis, it says their eyes were open. For the first time, they saw that they were naked. They were ashamed. They went and sewed some leaves together to try to put on aprons, tried to cover things up, kind of like what we do when we sin. They were embarrassed. They were self-conscious. They wanted to hide, especially from God. They tried to hide, and, but he found them. He knew where they were the whole time. In verse 14 and so forth, he curses them. Cursed their marriage, cursed them individually. That's called the fall. I mean, stop and think. God gave Adam one command, just one. I mean, he could do anything else but this one thing. And that is the only thing that kept Adam at a point of submission to God. It's the only thing that differentiated between Adam and God. I mean, if there were no commands, no prohibitions, then Adam would have been really had the same right to rule as God had. But by giving him that one prohibition, he put him under God. 
And he said, you're man and I'm God. And there's one thing I'm asking you not to do. But what does Adam want? Adam wants to be like God. And Satan knew that very well. That's why he fell. That's why Satan fell. Lucifer, when he says, I will exalt myself and be like the Most High. You read that in Isaiah over and over. He's saying, I, I, I will, I will. That's what what Lucifer was saying. And he acted on that. And so at the core of, of Adam's sin was nothing other than selfishness. That's what sin is. It's selfishness. It's saying, you know what, God, I don't want to do it your way. I want to do it my way. It's been that way from the very beginning. I mean, how selfish do you have to be when you can have everything in the entire world except one stupid tree? One fruit, and that's the one fruit you're going for. Because that separates the men from the boys. That's the thinking. It's unfortunate. But notice, when Adam sinned, something happened. Something tragic, something dramatic happened. It says that sin, what? Entered the world. When Adam sinned, this incredible thing happened. His sin literally brought a constitutional change into his being. He was a perfect, created being before this point in time. But he degenerated from his original creative identity to become different. All of a sudden, there was unholiness as part of the fabric of his soul. Notice, it says that through one man's sin, back in Romans, through one man's sin, death entered. It doesn't say sins. It's a singular Not all the acts of sin came through Adam. He didn't invent all kinds of sin. That's not the point. But the principle came. The nature, the disposition, the corrupting element entered into the human race. For Adam was mankind. He was all the mankind there was. Him and Eve. And once the sin principle came to dwell in him, he would then pass it on to all of us to procreation. Just as Adam's children had ears and hands and nose and toes, like Adam did, they also had sin. The world of mankind became corrupted. What's the practical lesson in that for us? That you're not an island. You're not an island. What you do matters. You know, you may be 
thinking in your, in, your, in your mind right now, well, you know, some of the sin I'm involved in, it doesn't involve anybody else, and it's just, you know, it's just my sin. It's just, you know, my little realm of, of sin. No, it does affect others. You're not an island. You can't be isolated. You can't be separated. Adam acting in solidarity. Adam was mankind in his loins was the seed of humanity that would bring forth every human life. And when he was polluted, so everything else that came out of his loins was polluted as well. I mean, just look at it on a practical level, on a natural level. When parents have children, you know, you don't have to go too long in, the, in that little child's life to realize that they're little sinners. They're not perfect. So the whole human race is caught in the pollution of sin because of Adam's one reckless act. And that's what Paul is saying here in verse 12. Through one man, sin entered into the world. That's pretty basic. It's a pretty simple point. But it has incredible ramifications. Adam acting as mankind was the solid mass of humanity. And when he sinned, he introduced sin into the human stream. And so that one man, by one act of disobedience, affected the whole human race. 1 Corinthians, in in chapter 15, I think it is, it says, As in Adam, all die. God said, you eat, and the day you eat of it, you will die. And that death principle became operative in Adam and Eve the day they ate. Think about it. If they had not eaten, they would have no doubt been translated somehow into the presence of God without experiencing death. They experienced the presence of God every day. He walked with them through the garden. With the notable exception of Enoch and Elijah, that would be the rule for everybody. But because Adam sinned, death came. And like I said before, we think of death as a natural consequence of life, but it's really not. If you go back to the beginning, it's not. Death is an invader. Death is, is, is a usurper. It's an intruder. Death is a, 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 a punishment, a consequence of sin. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4 said, The soul that sins, it shall die. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, it says, The wages of sin is death. Death becomes the penalty for sin. And that's that direct and unfailing fruit of the poison that came through Adam. Everybody dies. Heard one teacher say that there's, a, there's an undertaker somewhere and he signs his letters, eventually yours. You know, that's true. You know, eventually, you're going to be lying in a box and people are going to be looking, oh, weren't they a beautiful person, right? <laughs> but you're going to be dead. We're all going to die one day pending the Lord's return. Unless he comes back before that. But sin and death, beloved, can't be separated. They can't be isolated from each other. So sin came through Adam into the human experience, and as a result of that, death was passed onto the human experience. The deeds of sin flow out of the character of corruption. 
because we have that corrupt principle of evil within us. We do evil deeds. We sin. Important point. We are not made sinners because we sin. Do you understand that? We are not made sinners because we sin. We sin because we were made sinners. Big difference. I am not a sinner just because I I sin. I sin because I was born a sinner. And because I was born a sinner, the death principle operates in me, and eventually I will die physically. I am spiritually dead, the Bible says, outside of Christ. I'm cut off from God. Someday I will die eternally. The Bible speaks of, of two deaths, the physical death and the spiritual death. So when you stop and you think about it, here they disobeyed God, and they resulted, it resulted in God banishing him from the garden, imposing a curse on all this. And so when you, you think that, okay, this is just a natural consequence of life, well, it's not. But it affected everybody. All you have to do is jump over in Genesis. You can go to Genesis chapter 5, and you, some of these patriarchs lived extremely long lives, several hundreds of years. And, you know, creationists say, well, yeah, because it's closer to the fall and, and, you know, the atmosphere was different. Everything was different, so people live longer. But as time went on, everything kind of depleted and our lives were cut short. But when you read the genealogies, it says, oh, so-and-so lived so-and-so and he died. And he died. Over and over and over it says that. So not only did people begin to die physically after the original sin, but also the entire creation, Romans tells us in Romans 8 when we get there, the whole creation began to experience death. That brought an incredible curse on everything. So Paul has in mind not only the physical death, but also the spiritual death that came through Adam's fall. And down in in verse 21 of our text, chapter 5, Romans, he contrasts the death that came in through sin with eternal life. When, when Adam sinned, he experienced spiritual separation from God. And apart from the gift of eternal life through Christ, which would have resulted in eternal separation from God, unless you trust in that, um, the Bible describes that as a second death. Our spiritual death is a second death. So both physical and spiritual death entered into the world through Adam's original sin. But what does Paul mean when he says, and so death spread to all men men because all sinned? There's a lot of different people that have different thoughts on this. But basically what he's saying to wrap it up is when Adam sinned, we all sinned. In other words, God appointed Adam as a representative of the head of the human race. And his sin involved the entire human race in sin. His sin was imputed to us, you might say, just like Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. We were all born in sin. We don't become sinners, we are sinners. 
John Owen in his little book called The Mortification of Sin says sin isn't something we do. Sin is something we are. That changes the whole dynamic. That should drive you to your knees and cry out to God's grace and mercy each and every day. Unfortunately, there's people even within Christendom that believe that somehow you attain a certain spiritual level in your spiritual walk where you reach sinless perfection. I read about one church that believed that, and then several months later, I was reading in the headlines that their pastor fell in adultery or whatever and was disbanded from the church. And I thought, okay, that that should prove it right there to them. But we live with that kind of situation every day. And I mean, practically, when you think about it, if you think about our, like with our country, okay, our country, the heads of state are making certain decisions. I mean, our country could be at war tomorrow. I mean, we're at war now, but I mean, like a full declared war. Well, you may not want to be at war, but you know what? If you're part of this country, you're at war. <laughs> That's how it works. Same, same principle. And I think we also have to stop and think, well, wait a minute. Would we have done anything different than what Adam did? Do you really think yourself so wonderful, spiritual, disciplined, that you would be in a situation like Adam? And when Eve said, here, take a bite, Adam. Oh, no. No, no. God said, we shouldn't do this. We're not going to do it. I don't think we would have done anything different. So when Adam sinned, we all sinned. B, there on the the first page of your outline, the proof of Adam's sin affected the entire human race is that sin or death is universal. Um, You notice in verse 12, there's a comparison there. It says, just as. And then it breaks off in the middle of the the sentence there uh, to explain kind of his comment, because all sinned. But what he's doing is he's arguing the fact of universal death from the time of Adam until the time of Moses. So look at this. He says, all sin, verse, the end of verse 12, death spread to all men, all of sin. And then he says in verse 13, for sin was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. What's Paul saying? Were the Ten Commandments, were the commandments of God, was the law of God around when Adam and Eve were in the garden? No. And it wasn't for quite a while that they were there. People still sinned, but what Paul was saying is it was different because they they didn't have any commands to follow. There was no commands to be followed. It'd be like if there were no traffic signs. Well, you couldn't get a ticket for breaking the speed limit if there's no law that says you can only go so fast. And so what Paul is trying to explain here is that, listen, it's it's not just about the idea that you're doing certain wrong things. It's not about your deeds. Because he says, well, sin was around in the world before the law was given. God didn't give them a law. How could they sin? And then in verse 14, he says, but 
They still bore the consequences because death reigned from Adam to Moses, even though there was no law. So technically, they couldn't break the law, but they were still dying. And Paul is saying, why would you think that would be? And his answer is simply that it's because of Adam's sin. It's not because even of our own sin. We have enough sin of our own. But it's because of Adam's sin that this whole process began. And he wants us to get that. He doesn't want us to, to, to think that just because we're doing a bunch of wrong things or a bunch of right things, on the other hand, that that makes us the person that we are. See, that's what the Pharisees thought. That's why they would put on long robes and they would do nice things and and go out in the public and pray prayers on the corners because people would look at them and go, oh, look at that holy person. Just because of that, you know, they'd go go back to their home and they'd do hideous things. That's why Jesus called them a a whitewashed tomb. (laughs) Right? On the outside, you look nice, but on the inside, your heart's wicked just like everybody else's. And so our actions, our deeds, don't always dictate our spiritual state. They died because Adam's sin was imputed to them. They died when he sinned. That's the point. And the proof of their sinning in Adam is that they all died as well, even though there wasn't any law around to break And he wants us to see the parallel here. Because at one point here he says that Adam is a type of him who was to come, which speaks of Christ. Why does he say that? How can you compare Adam to Christ? I mean, Adam was the guy that sinned. This is where all the sin came from. Christ is the, the peak of perfection. He was sinless. Paul wants us to see a parallel. In the parallels, Adam's descendants were all implicated in his sin and died, even though they didn't violate specific commands as he did. God didn't tell all the descendants of Adam not to eat of the tree. He told Adam, and yet they all had to pay the price. And what he wants us to say, see, is when he sinned, we all have that sin nature. And it's the same way with Christ. All the descendants of of Christ, born spiritually through his new birth, are identified with him and are counted as righteous, not because their individual deeds are righteous, but because of his righteousness. It's almost like a comparison of opposites. John Piper explains it this way. That is the all-important parallel. The deepest reason why death reigns over all is not because of our individual sins, but because of Adam's sin imputed to us. So the deepest reason, really, eternal life reigns is not because of our individual deeds of righteousness, on the other hand, but because of Christ's righteousness imputed to us by grace through faith. Do you see how this practically fleshes out in our Christian walk? That we don't have to walk around on eggshells. 
We don't have to, oh, I sinned, I guess I'm not saved now. No. We already have no righteousness. The only righteousness we have is what God gave us through Christ. He didn't save us because we're good people. He didn't save us because we don't sin. He saved us because that's the only way there was. That's why when someone comes to Christ, they can't be doing a comparison game. You know, when I got saved, before I was saved, I was always comparing myself to my other family members, mainly my brothers, saying I wasn't like them, I wasn't like them, I didn't do the things that they did. Look at me, I'm goody two-shoes. But my heart was still sinful, and God had to show that to me. And trust me, it was God that showed it to me. I mean, a pastor spent, you know, a half hour taking me through Romans 3 and and, and saying, look, it says all have sinned. I know, but I'm not like my brothers. I just kept saying that over and over for like 20 minutes. And then it was like God finally turned the light on. And I thought, wow. So if all means all, that means me. This means that I'm a sinner. Right. You know, I can see the guy finally. Oh, good. Duh, you got it. Man, you know, I was kind of a hard nut to crack because I was so steeped in my, in my Catholic upbringing of, of doing certain things to get God's approval that, you know what? I didn't act like my, my other people or my friends that were bad characters. I was a pretty good kid, so, you know, I'm, I'm a step above everybody else. And what Paul's message to us is saying, no, you're all on the level playing field. We're all sinners desperately in need of God's grace. And until you come to that point in your life, you're lost. You're lost. If you're trying to justify yourself, you're lost. Bernard Shaw says that statistics on death are quite impressive. One out of one die. (laughs) You know, outside of Christ, that's our only hope. We're all going to die one day. You can try to preserve your body all you want through exercise and health and food, and that's good. You you see some of these older people, actors, you know, I mean, they almost look like aliens. They've tried to, you know, preserve themselves so much. The plastic surgery has really done them harm. They look like a walking corpse in my mind. They can't even smile. Death is God's penalty for Adam's sin, and it's imposed on all of us. Death reigns if we're still in Adam, and how do we escape the curse? We'll look at that next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that some of these verses are hard, they're difficult to process, but Lord, you give us a spirit to lead us and guide us. Lord, the simple concept is through the one act of Adam, all of us, are called to account for our sin. We're all made unrighteous. And Lord, we we thank you that you've shown us this morning that we don't have to stay in that state. That there doesn't have to be a death sentence. That you come along through Jesus Christ and who has provided a sacrifice for the forgiveness of sin. And Lord, that you have allowed us to come to you with repentant hearts, to cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me, God. There's nowhere else I can go. 
And Father, when you come down and you transform our human heart and you allow us to believe in you and the sacrifice that Christ provided for us, you, you fundamentally change our state before you. you. You give us the righteousness of Christ. Just like we were given the unrighteousness of Adam. There's a way out of it. It's through Christ, through his sacrifice. I pray for each soul here this morning, if you haven't trusted in Christ, if you've yet to put your faith and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I pray that you would cry out to him, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Help me to understand these concepts. Help me to understand where this flushes out in my own life. I don't want to leave this place being uncertain of where I might go after I pass from this life into the next. That I can be certain that I will be in your presence. Not only that, but I can live out the remaining years here on earth as an ambassador for you, telling other people about the love of God, telling other people about the forgiveness that's available through Christ. Father, we ask that you would do that work in our hearts. Help us to leave this place today as believers knowing that we are secure in our faith. That we have a message to tell to the nations that is a message beyond all others. That there's forgiveness and new life in Christ. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and we'll close.